Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Priya Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. All of it is delivered in 50 minutes or less because you don't have time to waste. Let's get started. Hi, podcast friends. I'm thrilled to present this conversation with Jennifer McCrea, who is deeply transforming the practice of fundraising. Jennifer has written the Generosity Network with Jeffrey Walker and teaches the Exponential Fundraising course at Harvard's Kennedy School, where we first met. She is a sought-after global speaker, leader, and teacher, and someone I'm very honored to call a friend. We'll link to where you can find Jennifer in the show notes. Enjoy! Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Oh, you have been such an inspiration to me and so many others when it comes to fundraising. So I I want to ask you, so many people dread fundraising. What's the joy in fundraising for you? First of all, the term fundraising is a total clunker Mm. because we think it's just about raising money. And of course, money is an incredibly valuable resource that we need to get moving. An idea just is an idea unless we resource it with money. But it's also about all the other resources we have to get moving and into action to get our work done. And so that's money, time, arguably our most valuable resource, networks, life experiences, and certainly, especially now, but always moral resources. Because at the end of the day, this work is for all of us, everybody, it's about creating choice, right? So you every day you get up and you make the choice, do I do this or do I not do this? And so mobilizing our moral resources in, in a way that people are creating the possibility, especially in community, to get work done is really the ethos of the heart of what fundraising is. And it's painful when people feel like it's this ugly problem I wish I didn't have. You know, it becomes a lot easier when, and even joyful, when we start to see as a necessary vehicle through which we're going to get real change done. And in, in that way, it's not this kind of solo operation. Like a lot of times fundraising gets really, you know, scary or frustrating for people because you feel like, uh, you know, this is all on my shoulders. And the truth is it's really a commitment of a community to say, all right, here's the, you know, the change we want to see on the ground. Here's, you know, who are we want to engage around that change and how are we going to combine all of us have resources to bring, by the way. Some of us have more financial resources than others, but we all have resources to bring and how are we combining those in support of the, of the work we want to get done. And I guess I'll just say the one other thing really quickly is that Whenever I teach, you know, one of the first things I do is I, I, you know, I put up a big whiteboard and I, on the left-hand side, I say, what is fundraising? And everybody says things like mobilizing resources in support of our cause, it's narrative, it's creating relationships, it's, you know, all these things. And, and I always say that, you know, that's so good and that's so important. Everything listed on the left-hand side of that big piece of white paper is critical. And then I draw a big line down the center of the white paper and I say, why is it so hard? And, you know, people just start telling me, and I, and I can unpack some of these if you want, but they start telling me like fear of rejection or, you know, power dynamics or relationship with money or competition, you know, something like 500 new nonprofits created every day in the United States, you know, and on and on and on. And so the essence of my work is to start to see how those perceived obstacles aren't really real. And we're putting up obstacles that are blocking the flow of resources and that our whole challenge, and by the way, I, I don't think this is just a fundraising challenge. I think this is a leadership and ultimately a life challenge because life energetically flows, but we're constantly putting up obstacles that's blocking the flow of it. And so 
being mindful and aware of what obstacles you're putting up is really the first key to making fundraising much easier and even, as you said, joyful. So that's such a great segue because I wanted to talk about what are the internal shifts and obstacles that we have to be aware of, particularly when it comes to fundraising, but sort of broadly as people and as leaders trying to make change in the world. Yeah, I one, as I said, I think what probably our most challenging one is our relationship to money. So whenever I do a workshop, one of the first things I do is have people kind of break off into small groups and just really answer the question of, you know, what was money's role in your life as a kid and how's that affecting your ability to live and work and, you know, be in the world of money today. And, you know, very often what people come back with is, is, is a realization that this, this isn't a new challenge. This is mm-hmm. a challenge because money's, you know, money's an energy source. Money is an energy source once removed. In our culture, you know, very unfortunately, money gets infused with values of scarcity and power and control and, you know, those kinds of things. And an internal shift is to start to potentially think about you know, what happens if I am imbuing money with values like justice and courage and change and love? And you can actually start to see money not as a vehicle for everything wrong in our world, although because we imbue it with so many negative values, it is, but a possibility that actually money can be used in a different way. And I'll just add one other quick note on that. I was doing a workshop um, a couple months ago and a woman there was who runs an amazing organization that is just doing incredible work on the ground and she, you know, really wanted to she knew to get this this work done. She had to resource it financially and otherwise. And we did this exercise and at the end of the exercise she said, you know, it's so interesting. I, I didn't realize that in my family money equaled safety. Mm. So as I was sitting across from people, I realized I wasn't asking them for the important work that I'm doing. I felt like I was trying to take their safety away. No wonder it was so hard. And so it was a big shift inside of her to say, I'm not taking someone's safety away. In fact, you know, just the opposite. I'm giving people an opportunity to commit with me and my team to to take a stand with us and, you know, hopefully to win with us. And it was a, diff- a big shift, and I've, you know, gotten since reports back from her how that one little shift has fundamentally changed her ability to sit in front of people and really engage them in a, in a deeper way. Yeah, I, cause I love the emotional baggage that we have about money. It's so interesting. We, we can do another podcast about that entirely. But one thing I wanted to ask about is when I took the course with you, you said something that one of the things that really stuck with me was that how the words that we use can change the way that we think and the way that we relate. And so I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit about that in, in terms of how are the words that we're using around fundraising and around resource development and around partnership change in a positive way? Yeah, and I think this is, again, true with all of life, right, because our words are our lived experience. To me, it's never about externally selling someone. So I'm never using words as a tool of manipulation and I'm using or narrative for that matter. Um, but, I, you know, words to me are the way that I find my ballast and my grounding to really go into every conversation. You know, as I said just a minute ago, but like we still have in the fundraising this image that, you know, we're out there with a begging bowl asking someone to do us a favor. And I want to go into every conversation, you know, standing up. And really knowing in my heart that the work that I'm doing and that I'm, you know, inviting people to join with me in is really important, powerful work. And some of the words I think that disempower us are words like help 
You know, and I think, you know, when we're in the place where we're asking people to help us, there is immediately going to be a power dynamic in that. Instead of saying, will you help me? I'll say to people, will you join us? Or even more powerfully, will you take responsibility? For this. So if I, you know, if I'm hosting, you know, I'm asking someone to, you know, bring 10 people to a dinner with us, I'll say, will you take responsibility for that? And then other just words, again, this is even in my own head. I don't know that I even use this, again, to communicate with people, but just in my own head, like, I will be thinking things like, am I attached to this person or am I committed to this person? Because in, in attachment, you know, the relationship gets, you know, more and more and more confined over time and you're afraid you're going to lose them and you're like, you know, we, we've all been in relationships where we have unhealthy attachments mm-hmm. <laughs> versus a, a relationship where, there's a, you know, hopefully a shared commitment, but a certainly commitment on your your side that I'm actually committed to this relationship. That I want that over time, this relationship is in service of learning and growth, and in doing bigger and more things together, and going deeper, and all of that. You know, other other words. I mean, I, I'll give you one other just quick example. Is is like I hate the word client or customer. Like I feel like we are often like creating these flashy pitch books and trying to create you know marketing narratives to sell to grateful customers. And that's really the antithesis of what it means to actually be in community with people and to create you know consortiums of people that are again standing together and committing together. And so you've probably heard me say this before, but the the word consortium comes from the Latin constare, which means to stand together. Mm. And the word client comes from the Latin clientum, which means to lean against. And it's, you know, being in a client relationship or a grateful customer relationship isn't really – you can just take, stand up and leave anytime you want. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Being in a community where you've really stood, stood together – I didn't caveat that with, I, I was giving a talk one time in um, London and afterwards a faculty member came up to me. I had given that whole spiel about the consortium being, you know, the Latin root constari. And he came up to me and said, well, there's actually another derivation to that word and it's consort. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, it's to throw your fate together. And I said, that's uh, even better that. because to know my fate is inextricably linked with yours. And is an, by the way, this is true of all humankind. Right. Fates are inextricably linked. It's when mm-hmm. we start to disaggregate that and forget that and start moving into our, you know, silos and all that, that we, we will get competitive versus collaborative. And, in, you know, and we move into dependency versus interdependency. So, you're such a wise person. And I'm just wondering, what is the work that you've done? Or have you had external help and coaches to get to this point of being able to really introspect? Because I feel like, for a lot of executive directors and, and folks on the front line, it, it's just such a constant grind, and you really don't be able to create that emotional and mental space to get to the next level. So how do you get to the next level? Well, I'm really fortunate because early, early on in my life and career, I decided that my bucket list wasn't going to be places I was going to go, but wisdom keepers I was going to meet. <laughs> oh, so I – so good. I just sort of have fearlessly spent my life um, – Tracking down, like if I read a book from someone uh, or I hear something about them and I think, you know, and they seem like they're holding the world's wisdom, I track them down. And so I spent a week uh, about a year ago in France with Jean Vanier, you know, the, the you know, uh, this, uh, you know, total, you know, wisdom keeper who started L'Arche. I have, you know, many, I mean, there's just many, 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 many examples of people. And, and what's beautiful is that then we become friends. And I feel like we have, you know, it's not, again, this power dynamic where they're holding all the wisdom and I'm just sitting at their feet 
learning. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's this openness to move into relationship in a real way that it's just this. And so I, all all of these people I'm still friends with. I talk to them. I meditate with one of like crazy things like that. I have one 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 colleague who's definitely one of the world's wisdom keepers and we read poetry over uh over the phone together just to keep ourselves grounded and you know just things like that and so i to me i think we get caught in this space of you know it's just work like this work okay works here and over here is like everything else and to me Mm. it's like so deeply integrated and similarly i would say like friendship is really important, you know, and I, I feel like a lot of times people say, I can't be friends with that person. You know, I'm working with them and I'm like, mm. I'm friends with everybody I work with. Where it gets complicated, I'll just caveat this one thing, is if you're putting money at the center of the relationship, though. So, yes. you know, if money's at the center of any relationship, there's going to be a power dynamic and it's going to get awkward and weird. But my my worldview and ha- has always been money is, is just the gas that goes in the car. Mm-hmm. You know, not the car, not the driver, the destination. So I'm friends with everybody I'm working with, and what stays at the center is the work we're going to do together. Mm-hmm. You know, or or the friendship itself. If it's you know we're not working together, but I feel like disaggregating that is so like not serving us in this moment in time or ever really, but certainly now. It's so interesting because actually I came into this conversation thinking about fundraising, but actually now I'm feeling the conversation is moving into a really interesting place around. You know, there is a, a spiritual practice of leadership and becoming a, a whole and integrated person. Um, and so I'm wondering, how do people get there? Because I, I do think, especially the fundraisers, do put money at the center of a, of a relationship because they, frankly, is it because they're coming from a scarcity perspective? Is it because they're feeling the pressure of meeting payroll? Like, hopefully, yes, all of those things. And... And yet we realize that we have to create this relationship with a person that we're going to grow together. That's why the the narrative practice is so important, too. Um, You know, narrative, again, not as kind of, you know, my colleague Marshall Gales at Harvard talks about the, the, the glow from within, not the gloss from without. And so this narrative practice of really mining your, you know, your own life experiences for moments when you really started to understand why you're called to do the work you're doing is is incredibly powerful. And it's interesting because we may not have been, you know, five years old and known we were going to grow up to be a human rights lawyer, but we could have seen an injustice and felt, you know, we wanted to do something about it. So we think we dropped out of the sky caring about this stuff. But the truth is it's like so hardwired into us mm-hmm. for most people to really care. I do another exercise sometimes when I'm teaching where I'll ask people to talk about the first time they saw an injustice and felt compelled to do something about it or the first time they saw a, another living being suffering and wanted mm. to, you know, to do something. And people's stories are never about when they're 20, 30, 40. Their stories are when they're like five, six, seven years old. And mm. so it's a reminder to me, like to your question, like it's not about as much, it's, it's kind of going back to that, you know, removing obstacles. It's not like we're getting somewhere you said how do you get there I think it's like about undoing (laughs) you know what I mean undoing like this like this false narrative that's been like kind of piled on to us and societally culturally you know in our homes and all of that and going back to basics and that's why the narrative work is really really powerful and then we all know like when we're in you know a space we're actually really authentically hearing from people there's love there you know there's no choice but to really feel a sense of commitment and connection 
Yeah. But we don't we don't do that because we're just so busy, like creating pitch decks and selling. I feel like we're always just selling ourselves. So, and that's so exhausting. And I say to people, at the end of the day, if you're utterly exhausted, you were selling yourself, yeah. your ideas, whatever. If you're exhilarated, you are connecting. That's so important. And so I'd love to talk about that because one thing that really struck me in working with you is recognizing that not everyone's cause is going to be my cause. And I think when I stopped trying to chase down people who like weren't going to care about the thing that I cared about, it totally shifted the energy for me, which is like, okay, that's cool. If you're into saving the whales, like that's a beautiful thing and you should go do that. And, and I think so many people are in the space of trying to convince people that their cause is going to be their cause. Is that something that you've experienced? Yeah. Two sort of things there. One, this absolute conviction that you cannot be rejected. You know, somebody, right. if you're going in to invite somebody to join with you and their passion is something else, just what you said, I'm like, go work on the whales. That's awesome. That's a victory for the world, not a loss for me or my cause. Um, although because we have such a deep human fear of rejection, getting that ask out gets really hard. So that helps to reframe that. The other thing is, as I said, there's 500 new nonprofits created every day in this country. Many, 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 you know, arguably most with really, really important cause, you know, work and issues and causes. And the challenge is like we have it backwards because we start with what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. What's our issue and how are we going to, you know, create change around the ground instead of first understanding why are we doing it and who are we doing it with? Mm. And so we have issues are, I mean, I think if there's one thing that I, I feel like is like the most aha moment whenever I'm teaching is for people to really start to understand that issues are strategic decisions that people make once they've decided that they're committing around shared values and they're committing around shared community. You know, this relational commitment piece is so incredibly important and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of not committing to the issue, but, you know, when you're creating community, like looking each other in the eye and actually committing to each other Mm-hmm. You know, otherwise you do get into this kind of solo operation. I mean, you can't, you just can't grow that way. There's, you cannot grow if you're not doing that. So there's kind of two pieces of that, um, question. So one thing, and this is now more of a personal question, but I feel like in fundraising or in you know, resource development, particularly in New York, I found that people are really, uh, they have a lot of armor up. I mean, just to live in New York, I think, requires a lot of sort of emotional protection. And I'm wondering if you have any tips for how to really have deep, authentic, and vulnerable conversations with people, particularly ones that I think may enter into a conversation with some armor around, like, oh, I think I'm going to be pitched or I'm going to be asked for something, and I'm, I'm prepared to push back against that. Yeah, because, you know, most fundraising is practiced in a way that, you know, I call it fracking fundraising. You right. Know, have you have you ever had, you know where something's extracted from you versus something yeah. being given to you? And I don't know about you. I, I mean, this has happened to me recently where I had this really nice exchange with somebody and a really nice conversation, and then eleventh hour they just pulled out like you know an ask, and I was like, ooh, I just got networked. Like you know what yeah. I mean? Like so if there's a sense that like if people feel like people are being nice to them just because they need something from them or want something from them, that's not authentic. That feels mm-hmm. bad for you, and that feels bad for you know everybody and so to me it's like how do you go into a conversation with real you know it's intentionality you do have to be intentional about understanding what somebody's resources and needs are what your resources and needs are how do you might start thinking about 
combining those to commit to change on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're doing it from a place of, I'm just trying to be nice to manipulate somebody, that's going to feel horrible. And so people's armor is going to be up. And because unfortunately, that's the way we tend to connect in our culture, you know, very often, especially in art, wearing our quote unquote work hats, I, I feel like that's a problem. So I don't know, just some tool, you know, some tricks of the trade for me. I try really hard in a first meeting not to meet in someone's office. So I know that sounds like really like, are you kidding me? But you know, the truth is everybody has coffee and breakfast. You know what I mean? You can, yep. it's funny now moving to California. I lived in New York for, you know, many, many years, as you know, and I moved to California and now I actually, out here, you actually do walking meetings, which I kind of love. That's funny. You don't need for like chai and yoga? <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. But I just feel like the more you can get people in a place where you can actually have a conversation where people aren't in roles. Because the problem in an office is somebody is going to typically say, all right, what do you want? Go. You know, you got 20 minutes and you feel like this pressure. To, and you can still yeah. connect on a more authentic way there. But it's just easier if you can kind of get people in a more neutral um, you know, human place. Yeah. What strikes me is the there are two words are coming through my mind right now, which is curiosity and generosity. And of course, your book, The Generosity Network, is a perfect example. But like active connecting with people with a sort of whole heart and a genuine curiosity about who they are, I think goes a long way towards piercing the armor. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because I also do an exercise in my workshop, too, where I'll have people, like, you know, just pick anything, you know, any anything that you want to persuade somebody on. Um, like, say you want to persuade somebody on Pete's Coffee is better than Starbucks. I don't care. You know, I haven't picked any random, mm-hmm. um, random thing. And it's funny because when the first time they do the exercise, people are just going in with data all the time of, mm-hmm. um, you know, well, you know, Starbucks is more fair trade, you know, whatever. And, and and I ask people afterwards, and I say, how many people were persuaded? And people are sort of shaking their hands, like, cause, you know, if, if you're, like, loyalty is to peace, it's going to be really hard to persuade somebody to move over. And then we shift into how do we ask questions to evoke what people really care about, what their values are? What are the questions of, you know, these, why do you love peace and coffee? And then can you start to share your own narrative? Because at the end of the day, the way we're persuaded as human beings, and I mean persuaded in the best sense, in that it's an invitation for people to join together to get something real done on the ground. The way we're persuaded is not by facts. Facts are good supporting evidence, but we're persuaded by narrative and we're definitely persuaded by questions. So the art of the question, that curiosity, with intentionality though, I think it needs Mm -hmm. to have, in this domain, I think it needs to have intentionality. So you're asking the kind of questions that you're really starting to understand what somebody's values and how do they start to feel like what values are at stake. You know, because it's also... It's like, how are we getting values into action, but how, how are we understanding what values are at stake if we fail to act, which is equally important. So asking questions about all that. So I spend a lot of time working with people on just framing the right kinds of questions that are helping to understand what somebody's really about underneath the, you know, the bio and all that. Yeah. As, as fundraisers, we often don't necessarily think about the need of the person that we're talking to. And I, and I love that you, have also shifted the use of the term donor to partner because I think that's an important shift. But they also are humans and they have needs and wants and fears and anxieties just like we do. And I think by really recognizing their own human experience and recognizing how what we can offer to meet some of their needs is an important shift to make. 
Yeah, I agree. And also, you know, within that, also knowing what your needs are and what your resources are and what, you know, because at the end of the day, this idea, because if we had all the resources we needed to get, you know, anything done in life, like we would just be a solo operation. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We have we have needs for relationship. We have needs for change. We have needs to create meaning in our lives. We can't do that. It, it, it by ourselves, you know, and so, and, and the same thing with, you know, partners or anybody else, right? They have needs. And then we also have resources, again, not just money, but our time, our commitments, our moral research. Like, we all have resources that we can bring to meet each other's needs. That's, you know, what we're doing all the time in relationship. And so being, again, intentional about understanding what someone's needs, not in the interest of selling them, but in the interest of really understanding what somebody needs and cares about, and then what you're, you you need and care about, what resources you both have, and how do you combine those in a way, you know, because that's the whole, like, the, the crux of it is like this art of combining, you know, you know, that's, Stutopsil talked about that when he first came to America and was talking about what, what was making this culture here so uniquely volunteer-driven. And he, he was the French aristocrat that came over, as you probably know. And mm-hmm. he said, you know, one line that really has stuck out for me and my work, and he said, the mother of all knowledge, and I always thought that was really profound, the mother of all knowledge is the art of combining. Mm-hmm. And it's like combining old resources in new ways, new resources in new ways, and you, then you start to have new interests that you didn't even know you had. <laughs> you know what I mean? You start yep. to have new resources you didn't even know you had. And so it's this invitation for people to go on this journey together in a way that isn't like, me saying, okay, let me try to identify what he or she needs and then let me try to fit, you know what I mean? Yeah. What we're trying to do in there, it really needs to be this synergistic interdependent thing. I love that. So last question for you. One of the most impactful tools I, I took away from our time together was the Jeffersonian dinner. And at this point, I've, I've hosted many, I've participated in many, and I'm wondering if you could speak to both what it is briefly and some of the benefits that you've seen come out of Jeffersonian dinners. Yeah. And, you know, let me first say, you know, basically they're intentional whole table conversations is the way that I would uh, phrase it. And of course, the, the it's a framework, not a formula. So people can take pieces of it and adapt it and modify it. And also, of course, people can call it whatever they want. I think like Berkeley College of Music calls it Dizzy Gillespie dinners. Aspen Institute calls it food for thought dinners. Like, you know, people, mm-hmm. I, I'm hearing, you know, different, you know, things to call it whatever you want but it's an it's an it's basically an attempt to gather a small group of people usually about 10 to 12 people to come together and really kind of follow that narrative arc of you know an invitation to really to ask a question of about me you know like a story of self and then an invitation to start to have a shared dialogue and us kind of dialogue and then an invitation to start to talk about now like this you know what's what's urgently being called of us now Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have needs for relationship, we have needs for change, we have needs to create meaning in our lives. We can't do that by ourselves, you know, and so, and and the same thing with, you know, partners or anybody else, right? They have needs. And then we also have resources, again, not just money, but our time, our commitments, our moral research. Like, we all have resources that we can bring to meet each other's needs. That's you know, what we're doing all the time in relationship. And so being, again, intentional about understanding what someone's needs, not in the interest of selling them, but in the interest of really understanding what somebody needs and cares about. And then what you're, you you need and care about, what resources you both have, and how do you combine those in a way, you know, because that's the whole, like, 
the the crux of it is like this art of combining. You know, you know that's De Tocqueville talked about that when he first came to America and was talking about what what was making this culture here so uniquely volunteer driven. And he he was the French aristocrat that came over, as you probably know, and mm-hmm. he said, you know. One line that really has stuck out for me and my work, he said, the mother of all knowledge, and I always thought that was really profound, the mother of all knowledge is the art of combining. Mm. And it's like combining old resources in new ways, new resources in new ways, and then you start to have new interests that you didn't even know you had. You know what I mean? You start to have new resources you didn't even know you had. And so it's this invitation for people to go on this journey together in a way that isn't like, me saying, okay, let me try to identify what he or she needs, and then let me try to fit, you know what I mean? Yeah. What we're trying to do in there, it really needs to be this synergistic, interdependent thing. I love that. So last question for you. One of the most impactful tools I, I took away from our time together was the Jeffersonian dinner. And at this point, I've, I've hosted many, I've participated in many, and I'm wondering if you could speak to both what it is briefly and some of the benefits that you've seen come out of Jeffersonian dinners. Yeah. And, you know, let me first say, you know, basically they're intentional whole table conversations is the way that I would uh, phrase it. And of course it's a framework, not a formula. So people can take pieces of it and adapt it and modify it. And of course people can call it whatever they want. I think like Berkeley College of Music calls it Dizzy Gillespie dinners. Aspen Institute calls it food for thought dinners. Like, you know, people I'm hearing, you know, different, you know, things to call it whatever you want but it's an it's an it's basically an attempt to gather small group of people, usually about ten to twelve people, to come together and really kind of follow that narrative arc, you know, an invitation to really to ask a question about me, you know, like a story of self, and then an invitation to start to have a shared dialogue and us kind of dialogue, and then an invitation to start to talk about now, like this, you know, what's what's urgently being called of us now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, without like going too deep into it, there's lots of material, like so many materials online that I, you know, people can just Google Jeffersonian dinners and get lots of information on the specifics of them. I guess I would say the reason I find them so powerful is because you're not going and making small talk. You're actually creating the conditions for a deeper dialogue around Yes, specific issues or specific ideas, but grounded, you know, grounded again in these narrative moments. And the two most important reasons they don't work is, one, they're not facilitated. They need to be lightly facilitated just Mm -hmm. because, you know, for all the obvious reasons, the obvious one is if someone's talking too much or going on too long. But the other one is, you know, when I've moderated hundreds of these, it's it's very often the person who hasn't said anything that has the most profound thing to say. And so inviting, you know, somebody to say, Brad, we haven't heard from you. Is there anything coming up for you that you might like to share? And then I'm always blown away by that moment because yeah. uh, I feel like somebody who's in listening mode is very often like has something so profound to say. The other way they don't, they they fail, I think, or don't work as well as they can as if they're not followed up on. Because what I find is people are really energized in these conversations and they're looking around the table going, well, this is an amazing group of people. What if we actually made up our minds to do something cool together or whatever? The momentum is, is there, the urgency is there, but then they don't get followed up on. So that's the other way that I see there's, they're under leveraged if you're not following up. But I'm happy to answer any more specific questions. I've seen them work in many, 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 many ways, but those are, those are the two ways in which I see they don't work as well. Yeah. It's funny because I've, you know, thanks to you, I've somehow become the, 
the guru of Jeffersonian dinners on the, on the East Coast. And uh, time and time again, I am talking to executive directors. And they ask, like, well, when do I do the pitch? And he goes, you don't do the pitch. I'm like, well, what do you mean I don't yeah. do the pitch? I was like, you don't do a pitch. Like, <laughs> I don't know how else. Like, there's no pitching. And I think, to your point earlier, it's very antithetical to the way that we think about fundraising and yet so much more powerful because it comes from authentic human connections and vulnerable, candid conversations about stuff that we care about collectively. Well, there is, you know, and it, it sort of depends on how the dinner goes, but there is an invitation to action. It's yeah. not a pitch, you know, and I think, I think in just general, we have to transcend the pitch because I feel like, you know, again, if we're not rising above the place where we're pitching people on a good idea, it, we're, we're missing out on that ability to really connect with people on a more authentic level and inviting them to, to, again, that invitation to action is coming from within somebody. Now it needs to be, grounded in a clarity of shared structure and shared outcomes, like how are we actually measuring the work on the ground? Like, you know, it can't just be this great, you know, you know, kumbaya feel good dinner. It still needs to be grounded, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's not a pitch. It's not a pitch. In fact, I tell people like, don't even like, I, I feel like a lot of times too with pitch books, this is just a side note that people use them as kind of a, a like a, either a tool to not actually have to counter somebody face-to-face, you know what I mean, like for real, like you're, Mm -hmm. or like what I see a lot of times is what I call the scenario preparation, which is people are like, okay, if I just get one more, you know, tweak to my pitch post, then I'm going to go out and start to build a relationship. Ah, I call that procrastinate learning. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly, same exact thing, so. This has been so wonderful. Where can folks find you online if they want to know more about you? We'll link in the show notes, a link to your book and to your website. Are there any upcoming trainings that you're doing that we should be aware of? Yeah, you know, I do post them on my website. I don't have any till the new year, so I don't have any dates to share with you right now. But if you just go to my website, jennifermccray.com, you can uh, get all kinds of information. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, my friend. This has been such a pleasure, as always. Have a wonderful holiday. And, I, and we'll, we'll follow up in the new year. Okay, sounds great. Thank you so much. Thank Bye. you so much.